Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the RC Report. I have a very special guest on the line with me. I have New York Times best-selling author Jeff Perlman. You may know him from the interview with John Rocker on Sports Illustrated. Also, he's written two, many major books, but about two of the biggest franchises in America today, Dallas Cowboys and the Los Angeles Lakers. Jeff, welcome. Thank you. That was a very nice introduction. Yes, I'm a big fan. Uh, I, I just wanted that. to, early on, get on the writing aspect of things. I want to know what your writing process is like. Uh, well, I guess if if you're uh, if you're talking books, um, yeah, books. What, but yeah, basically, I mean, you know, like let's say I get a subject. Like, we'll just use Walter Payton as an example. Um, I usually have two years to write the book, to do the do the book, do everything. So uh, I generally take about a year and a half of just research, like nonstop research, digging into a subject, calling everybody, uh, going through clips, tracking down clips. Uh, just a, a mat. You end up. I always I always think at the end of a book, pro, or by the time I'm writing a book, I basically have one of the world's biggest libraries on whatever subject I'm writing about. You know, if, when you you buy every book on Amazon that had anything to do with Walter Payton, you know, you you go through all the old libraries, you go to Chicago and you dig through the Tribune, the Sun-Times, you know, Sports Illustrated, the Sporting News, everything you can think of, Jet, Ebony, I mean, every magazine you can think of and you, and you find everything about Walter Payton. So then with about six months left, I just take it all and I have it all in sort of a chronological uh you know, filing system. And I just, every day, um, a friend of mine named John Wertheim, who, who writes for SI and does some great books, he uh, he said to me early on, he's like, you just you just make it so you have to average at least a thousand words a day of writing. So once I start writing, um, I have to do at least a thousand words a day. And usually I'm in a coffee shop somewhere. I don't really like writing in an empty house. So I've pretty much been, to, I, I think I've been to more coffee shops in the past 10 years uh, than any American. I mean, I'm always looking for new coffee shops to write in. It's got to have a good outlet. Got to have uh, tables that are wobbly, and refills are always good. Gotcha. When did you know that you wanted to be a writer, or maybe you always knew, uh, or was there a certain point where you just knew that this is your calling in life? Um, yeah, that's a good question. These are good questions. I had um, I had a pretty good, uh, you know, I was so basically, um, I don't, I haven't even talked about this that much, but my. Uh, I have a brother who grew up, he's two years older than me, one grade ahead of me, and uh, has Asperger's, which is a form of autism, and had a lot, of, a lot of struggles growing up. And when he was in high school, he decided he was going to do the student newspaper. And, you know, my brother, he's a great guy, and, you know, it's a very minor form of autism. It's not, nothing damning or anything, but um, my brother decided to do the student newspaper, and my parents, I think rightly, in hindsight, steered me away from doing newspaper because they wanted him to have an activity of his own. You know, like uh, a lot of times he was probably in my shadow a little bit just because I was good at sports and I was more social. So I wasn't able to do the student newspaper until my junior year. Uh, he stopped doing it. Um, so my junior year of high school, I started writing for the student newspaper at Mail Pack High School, the Chieftain. Uh, and I just loved it. I really loved it. And my senior year, I was sports editor of my high school newspaper. And uh, a couple of things happened that, that like really did it for me. Uh, number one was um, I wrote this story once about how cheerleading isn't a sport. It's just an activity. 
I don't even know if I believed it. I don't know why I wrote it. <laughs> Do you still it. think that? Uh, no, definitely. If you look at the competitive cheerleading <laughs> out there, but this was like, you know, the, the high school. Yeah, a long time waving, ago. Okay, okay. Just, yeah, they were like waving pom-poms. It was 1990, waving pom-poms and whatever. And it probably wasn't a sport, but it doesn't even matter. But I wrote the story, and it came out. And that day, I'm sitting in the cafeteria, and I'm just like this little writing track geek, and I'm surrounded by cheerleaders screaming at me. <laughs> and I'm like, this like is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> this is awesome, right? I can't get any better. And then the other one, it's so funny. It's one of my favorite stories because it's so humiliating. Um, there was this, there was a, this Mail Pack High School had a rock band called Illusion. And the, uh, the keyboardist for Illusion was this girl named Teresa McClure. And she was just an absolute cutie, and, uh, but wasn't in my circle. So I, uh, I decided to do a profile of her for the Chieftain. So I told her, you know, my name <laughs> no is Jeff Froman. No ulterior motives or anything like totally. that. Totally. Are you joking? I didn't, you know. And, uh, <laughs> of course, yeah. Hey, my name's, my name's Jeff Perlman, and I, you know, they want, they, they, I love it, they, they want me to do a story on you for the Chieftain. <laughs> so uh, I remember meeting her in the library, and then I did the, this is how big of a geek I was in high school. So I wrote the story, and it came out. The headline was Rocker's Talent, No Illusion. You know, very clever. And, uh, and I called her up, nervous, handshaking. And I was like, yeah, my, uh, so, you know, that story, every time I have a front-page story, my dad gives me money. And so I made money off of writing that story on you, so I just wanted to know if maybe you'd want to go out sometime, right? And uh, it's a true story. And she's like, uh, yeah, okay, sure. And then she, like, avoided me like the plague. And I never want to know that. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was like so basically you owe like, your writing career to uh, adolescent uh, pursuing horniness. women or <laughs> yeah, yeah, they adolescent horniness, man. They want to be but and, Yeah, basically. It's right, well, a better thing like, for you than others. <laughs> it, was basically, it was basically like a guy who wanted to be heard, who wa- uh, someone voiceless who wanted to have a voice, right? And uh, yeah. so that really did it for me. I mean, that really, like, it really, like, got me into writing was, like, Seeing that you had a voice with a pen, it's cliche, but it really was true with me. So, you mentioned your dad paying you for front page stories, but what was the first official story that you got paid for? Well, first of all, my you dad didn't really pay me. That was a total lie to get Teresa McClure to go out with me. Oh, it wasn't, that wasn't even true. true. <laughs> no, you're very convincing. Yeah, no. Um, first story I got paid for was um, well, I, I after my. Uh, after my senior year of high school, I started interning for the local paper. There was a local weekly paper in Cross River, New York, called the Patent Trader. And uh, the sports editor there, Joe Lombardi, let me uh, let me write for him. And uh, I don't know, I might have gotten a couple of bucks here and there, but he, he would take me out to a Jewish deli at the end of my internship and every now and then during it. And that was like the payment for writing was he would take me out for food. So I guess... I guess, uh, like a lot of writers, I kind of started by writing for food, you know. And then when I was in college, <laughs> we used to get paid at the University of Delaware. We actually got a salary to write for the student newspaper. So that was probably my first real salary. I've seen you on Twitter reach out to, and I see that you're writing a USFL book, but I was, in the past I think I've seen it too. I've seen you reach out to people uh, for connections, for books, to try to find people. Does that work? Or And has Twitter made your job for researching is it, I mean, has it changed? Well, I know it's changed, but has it made it easier? Or, um, yeah, it's a good. That's a good question. I, uh, it's a funny thing. All right, so Twitter is like total love hate. Um, the hate is it's the great distractor of all time. You know, like you're sitting in a coffee shop 
and you're trying to work and you have this book and I, it's a thousand words, but you know, you really want to tweet about Donald Trump or about something <laughs> stupid, you know, or whatever, Marco Rubio. Yeah, yeah. Bill Clinton. So that's a bad, but the good is it's crazy. Like I always say to like college students, and the young journalists, like Twitter, if you're just using Twitter to tweet, you're a fool because you can reach anybody. I've reached so many sources via Twitter. I'll give you a perfect example. This, this happened somewhat recently. I have a book coming out uh, later this year about Brett Favre. It's a book I just worked on for the past two years, and I'm kind of wrapping right now. And something happened where I needed to reach a former Packer linebacker named Nick Barnett. And I didn't have a number, and I literally was sitting at my kitchen table, and I just Googled him, and I saw he was on Twitter. Uh, and I sent him a quick tweet. I was like, hey, can you DM me if you have a second? And I would say 10 minutes later, or can you follow me? Can you follow me? I need to send you a DM. Ten minutes later, Nick Barnett's following me. Two minutes after that, I DM him. And five minutes after that, I get an answer to my question. Now, in the past, if I needed Nick Barnett, I'd call the Packers. They'd be a pain in the ass about it. Maybe I'd call his college. Maybe they have a number for him. I'd get his old agent. You know, so Twitter, I have found a ton of people through Twitter and Facebook. It's like, to me, it's a researcher's dream. It's just fantastic. Do you find that people... Uh, and a lot of times you are doing, I guess you're all, just about always doing the past thing with your books. Do you find that people are reluctant to talk about things back then, or do you find that they're readily uh, available to talk about it or to discuss it or willing to discuss it? See, it depends on uh, what the subject is uh, and who you're <laughs> writing about. Sense, For example, yeah. I mean, like, like uh, my last two projects or my latest two are, are kind of great examples. Like the USFL, right? It was a three-year league in the 1980s. Um, and it's, it was pure joy, right? Like, there's nobody who played in the USFL who doesn't like their experience in the USFL or, like, have warm memories of it. So I, I can't imagine unless someone is going through a tough time, has maybe, you know, deteriorations from football, that they wouldn't talk about the USFL. But let's say then you're doing, you know, a biography of Brett Favre. Um, you know, people have mixed feelings about him. Uh, people want to know well, can, let me check with him first. You know, let me check with so-and-so first. I got to check with my, you know, my agent or blah, blah, blah. So a lot of it just depends on the subject matter and uh, the context of it all. Do you um, – so when you have a story, and I've seen it throughout the years, I've seen where you've gotten a big public reaction to the story, to a story. Mm-hmm. What, how do you handle it or what's it like? being in the eye of a storm. You recently had a controversy. But I remember Mike Dicka basically calling you names on television. Like, you get reactions from people based on the stories that you do. How do you handle that, and what's it like to be kind of in the eye of the media storm, at least in the sports media storm? Yeah. Uh, I don't really like it. It's kind of funny. Like, um, I need my books to sell, obviously, uh, just because it's how I make a living. So, on the one hand, I guess it's, it's good to have attention. But, like, the Dicka one is a good example. Um, that was, uh, I wrote a book about Walter Payton, uh, called sweetness a few years ago and, uh, sports illustrated ran an excerpt, uh, which was really cool of them before it came out. Uh, but the excerpt was, was kind of like the end of Walter Payton's life. So it was when he was depressed and going through, uh, addiction issues and, and suicidal tendencies. So the excerpt came out, um, and I knew they were going to run it. It's not like I did anything wrong or anything. I knew what they were going to run, but the excerpt came out. And the book wasn't out yet. So all anyone saw was were the eight pages of the excerpt. 
and of course, some reporter in Chicago goes up to Mike Dicka and he says, "What do you think of it?" And I'm sure Dicka didn't even read it, you know. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. yeah. In fact, I'm, I can almost guarantee you he didn't read it. But you know, if I saw Jeff Perlman right now, I'd spit on him or whatever. You know, what would you? I'd spit <laughs> on him, and. You know, that became a real jumping-off point where I was getting absolutely destroyed in Chicago. I mean, destroyed for a book no one had yet read. And it's funny. People say, like, there's no such thing as bad publicity, and that's nonsense. That's really not true. Um, it was pain, It was really painful. I mean, I love that book. I love Walter. I mean, I love the experience of the book, and I love Walter Payton. Um, and I put more into that book than anything I've ever done in my life. And all of a sudden you have, you know, Dick, uh, Mike Wilbon, a million different writers saying, is this some guy doing it for the money? How dare you write this about him? Why now? Um, and, you know, you're just a guy. I love biography. Like, I love biography. I love writing. I love digging into a person's life, finding out what makes them tick. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's, these are historic figures. It's actually important and interesting. So when people question um, your motives, your sincerity, uh, it's really painful. It sucks. I hate it. I actually have a confession to make about this particular story in this book. I wrote one of my first blog posts when I started my blog, and I first started it, just had like a blog spot account, and I just was writing kind of. That wasn't as consistent as I have been the last couple of years. But I wrote about the excerpt that you <laughs> that you uh, wrote, and it wasn't positive either. But then yeah. I think it, it, it talked, but also not only that, but it gave me my first taste of like writing because Jason Whitlock retweeted it. And, okay. uh and so then I got all of this reaction both ways, and it kind of put me, and that's happened a couple times where someone bigger, a lot bigger than me has retweeted it, and, like, I got the reaction. But then I listened to you talk after I wrote your article, of course, and it sounded, and it was like, okay, well, he's trying to give the whole picture of this person. Cause I think there was something about him at the Hall of Fame going back and forth between his wife and his mistress. Yeah. But you were just trying to paint a story, and it, and it kind of, maybe the reason I even asked you, maybe, but it, it kind of showed me it's like you're just telling a story. You're not trying to, like, bash someone or try to get someone or, you know, you're really just trying to tell a story. Well, I mean, the thing is, uh, it's kind of funny. I had this line that I started saying around then that just popped in my head, which is people love the idea of a definitive biography until you give them a definitive biography. You know, like, you're, I mean, it would be a shame. You can't, I, I, you can't write a, you can't write a biography of, um, Martin Luther King, or, or, or we'll say this, you can't write a biography of John F. Kennedy, a true, sincere biography of John F. Kennedy, and say he was an angelic husband. Right? You just can't do it. It would be, it would be yeah. an incomplete book. You can't write a book about Lyndon Johnson and leave out Vietnam. Right? You can't do it. You can't, you can't write about Joe DiMaggio and write about, not write about the way he treated people, you know, which wasn't always great. Like, we, either, we either decide that we want to know what made people tick, the highs and lows of them, that we want definitive understandings of who people were, or we don't. We just gloss over history. Um, and to me, you're taking significant people in the history of sports. Walter Payton was really significant, and you're writing about him. And the thing that really pisses me off, to be honest, and pisses me off about that subject is we – there's nothing wrong. It's like we have this thing where it's like, oh, you're, you're damaging his legacy, or you're, you're really – you've done something irreparable to his image. And it's like – there's nothing wrong with knowing that a person was flawed. And there's nothing wrong with knowing a person's flaws. You know why? Because we all have them. We all have them. Everyone is flawed. We all have our, our issues. We all have our, our piccadillies. And that's kind of what makes us tick. And if we just say someone was perfect, 
and that he never farted and he never burped and he never went to the bathroom, we're left with this glossed over nonsense. So I'm a big defender of biography, not just my own, anyone who writes them. Yeah. I think there's what would you to say to the it. person? What would you say to the person that said, "Well, you should just leave it alone, and that's their stuff, and you should just and sports don't even, doesn't even rise to that." Like, it's not Winston Churchill. Like, what would you say to that? I'm sure you've heard that kind of argument. What would yeah. you say to that person that says that? I would say to me it is Winston Churchill. <laughs> I would. I, to me it's important. And I would say the same thing kind of I just said, which is we either decide we want to learn from history and learn who people were and really come to understand them. And I mean, there's a lot to learn from Walter Payton. And I, you know, like one of the things that's interesting is at the end of his life, he had really erratic behavior, Right. And, you know, he took a beating in his career, an absolute beating in his career. And at the end of his life, he had this erratic behavior where he was, he truly would, would call his assistant. He'd be crying on the phone. You're not going to see me tomorrow. I'm ending my life. I'm ending my life. Okay. So at the time, we didn't know that much about CTE, everything with, uh, with Andre Waters and Dave Dewarson. That hadn't happened yet. Junior sale. And now you can look back and you could say, you know what? This guy took a hellacious beating in his career, and something was wrong with him at the end. Um, and and Dicka, when Dicka comes out and says, like, we don't, we don't need to know about this stuff. We don't need to know about this stuff. Yeah, because maybe you contributed to it. Maybe there's something here. Like, maybe football isn't that great for people, and maybe knowing how they struggle. In fact, even if it wasn't CTE, maybe it was just the depression of having been a football player and, and having to adjust to life not being a superstar and just being a guy. Like, even knowing that struggle. There's something important about it and something profound about it. And it doesn't take away from Walter Payton's legacy or anyone's legacy to know that they struggled ever. What's that's the what biggest say. public reaction? Oh, did you, did you want to finish? No, I was saying that's what I was okay. saying. That's my, that's okay. My uh, what's the biggest, and if it's Walter Payton, just give me the second, mm-hmm. but what's the biggest public reaction you've had to a book or story that you've well, done? John Rocker. Rocker. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, what was it like being just like in that situation? That was just it took over everything, and it was really before social media. But it yeah. just la- it was one of those things that lasted two weeks straight of talk radio, and of course it, it touched on race, which always is like the yeah. third rail. But what? Uh, just tell me as much as you can about that. Well, it was weird. Um, it's a few things, like you said. There was no social media element, and it's funny because people say like. People have said, like, oh, if there was social media when that happened, it would have been crazy. And I actually think the opposite in a lot of ways because things have no immediacy anymore. Or things have immediacy, but they don't have any staying power. So I think a story like that, you know, it'd be trending on Twitter for maybe two days, maybe. And then we'd move on to the Kardashians. You know what I mean? Um, But back then, things, things, I I, I I feel like things stuck longer. Um, we, we, We had a longer attention span to singular items. So... You know, that was weird. I was only, I was 27. Uh, I was kind of working my way up at SI. Um, I was covering baseball, but I was, I was, you know, I was just a guy. And uh, I had, the funny thing is I had written a story about John Rocker. So that story came out in the last issue of 1999, the last uh, Sports Illustrated of the year. And I had originally written a story about Rocker during the NLCS. The, uh, The Braves were playing the Mets. And Rocker was kind of this hot reliever at the time. So my editor, a guy named Dick Friedman, was like, why don't you do a profile of Rocker? So I spent the NLCS, part of it, writing about Rocker and reporting him and getting little snippets of time with him here and there. I interviewed his parents. You'd interview teammates. And it's very funny. The original story that I submitted about John Rocker was completely different 
it was he's this guy yeah he seems kind of like an ass but he's actually misunderstood and um <laughs> yeah it's funny that was truly it because i didn't have that much access to him i got a lot of stuff from his parents and obviously his parents are are not going to say anything bad about him yeah yeah so i hand in a certain fact the final scene of that story was john rocker carrying his dead dog up the steps when he was a boy tears streaming down his cheeks i kid you not um so i hand in that story and what happens is the uh the Yankees sweep the Braves in the World Series. And they were going to run the story during the World Series, but it ended so quickly. You're not going to run a profile of a Brave player, you know, after the Yankees just swept them. So uh, a couple months later, my editor said, well, why don't you go down to Georgia and freshen the story up and we'll run it as an off-season profile. So I called uh, Rocker's agent, and he's like, yeah, you should come down. You're going to love John. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I drove around with John Rocker, and that's my, my story was – it was the cra- one of the craziest days of my life. What was going through your mind when he was saying these things? Um, yeah, it's kind of funny. It's like, uh, you know, it's like, uh, it's like a really good lesson for journalism, right? Um, for young journalists, I guess, in particular. Like, you're listening to a guy and you don't agree with anything he's saying, right? Like, he's talking about, you know, I'm like very liberal, you know, and I grew up, you know, not that it doesn't matter. You know, I grew up in a very sort of just open-minded world, you know. Yeah, and he definitely everything you are against, basically. Everything, right? And the thing is, like, as a journalist, your job, my job was not to sit there and argue with Rocker or agree with Rocker. My job was listen to listen to him. You know, that's what I'm there for. So my any of my, any liberal agenda or any, like, social agenda or whatever or, uh, policy issues, like, I'm not there to debate with you. Um, I'm not there to egg you on. I'm just there to listen and ask questions. Um, and that's what I did. So the weirdest thing is hearing some guy just tear into people and you thinking how just wrong it is, but you're not going to argue with him. You're just going to listen. So it's a weird kind of thing because usually I like to argue. Did you Did you hear from him from the story? Did he feel like he'd been, like, mischaracterized or... Um, well, what happened is the story ran and it kind of blew up as you, as you, uh, as you noted, it really exploded. And, uh, I would say he got suspended briefly. He got fined, whatever, public embarrassment, I had to make an apology. And, uh, the following June, it was either June or July, the Yankees were playing the Braves, uh, in Atlanta and my editor, we wanted someone to cover it. And I said, I'll go cover it. Um, mainly cause you, you know, when I was a young writer at the National Tennessee, and I had an editor named uh, Larry Taft, and he always said, like, you always have to give the person you write about a chance to sort of yell at you, right? It's like you owe it to them. It's like this journalistic code thing. It totally sucks, but it's true. So, um, I mean, nobody wants it. You know, you don't want to get yelled at, but whatever. So I said I would go down, and uh, I, was, I spent a lot of time in the Yankee clubhouse, and I decided I needed to go to – I needed to go to uh, the Brave side at least for a little bit. So I'm walking down the hallway, head down, kind of nervous. You know, Rocker was a big guy, you know, and he was juiced out of his eyeballs. So he wasn't just big, he was juiced. And uh, I hear this voice, and it goes, uh, you don't know how long I've been waiting for this. Oh, God. uh, Yeah, and I look up, and there's Rocker. And for the next two minutes, he just lit into me, um, you know, jabbing me in the chest. But it was, I mean... I mean, it wasn't fun, and I don't, I don't really have much respect for the guy, but, like, it was his right, you know? He thought, for him, he's like, I gave you a day of my time, 
and you like made me look like crap. And to me, it was you gave me a day of your time, and you're you're not a good person, and you showed me that side of you. So, you know, it was his right to go off, and it was my right to write that story. So here we are. We spend every Hanukkah together. It's a beautiful friendship. <laughs> you uh, you recently were in the news with social media and comments you made about uh, Fox News reporters yeah. or whatever you want to call them, info, <laughs> infotainment uh, ladies. What, and I also saw that you were contacted by a sex worker and you ended up interviewing her and putting <laughs> uh, the interview on the blog. What what have you learned from that experience? And what what in general, how do you handle social media? Because it's a landmine. Like you said, yeah. there's so many good things about it. But just like that, like people can take stuff out of context or maybe it's stream of consciousness. And it's not you can't necessarily articulate all of your thoughts, 140 characters. But how yeah. do you handle social media? And just generally, what did you learn from that? Uh, yeah, so it's funny. You asked that question. My wife walked in and uh, just like right that right now, and we we've had a lot of talks about that after that one. So that was um, that was a career low. That was that was pretty bad. Basically, this is a true story. I'm gonna tell you exactly what happened. I uh, I always go to the gym late at night, and here in Southern California, and the gym I go to has like five channels. It's the worst, right? And I you know I usually do like stairmaster and that stuff, and uh, it was uh, it's like CNN, ESPN maybe ABC, something, and Fox News. Um, and I turned to Fox News. Maybe it was in the morning. I think it was actually a morning workout. But it was Fox News, and it was a Gerardo on a couch surrounded by four women. And all of them were wearing really short skirts. Um, and it does drive me crazy. Like, I just think there's this gigantic double standard in media that I've written about before. Um, you, can be, you, can, you can be some schlubby-looking mashed potato guy and you'll have work in, in media, in television media. But for women, such an emphasis is placed on looks, um, on, you know, a certain, you know, a certain look. And it's no yeah. secret. It happens all the time, and it pisses me off, you know, because you shouldn't. there are a lot of women out there who know so much about sports, who dream of going in the media, and there's this roadblock on looks. And it's not, it does not, it does not apply to us, us meaning men. It's never applied to us. So... And Fox News, I, I do feel like, is sort of specializes in this, where they, they do objectify women. So I'm watching this, and I'm at the gym, and I have my phone, and I take a picture of it real quick, and I, I think I tweeted, this, why do Fox News women always dress like hookers? And, you know, it's, it was really dumb, like really dumb, because it's not like, the thing is, first of all, women do, they, they certainly have a right to dress how they want, and... They didn't do it. You know, it's not to me the, the the women themselves. It's not like they're doing anything wrong. You know, I I just feel like the system is really out of whack. So I tweet that out. I don't really think anything of it, and then just boom. You know, like just boom. Like I don't know how many angry responses I got, and it was harsh. It really was harsh. It was not fun. Um, mainly because you wanted to. I kept saying this to my wife, like. I, I wanted to scream, no, you don't, under, you don't understand. I'm actually, because people would be like, you chauvinistic pig. And I'm like, no, you don't yeah, understand. I'm one of the good guys. Yeah, you're like, I'm, I'm one of the I'm good, good guys. Guy. I'm enlightened, yeah. Right. So it was, and, and it's also a reminder. It really is, it was a good reminder. Like, you know, you have these thoughts and they go through your head and you just think, oh, I'm going to tweet this out real quick. But by doing that, it makes it permanent. It turns a quick fleeting thought into a permanent item that just sits there and hangs there. Um, so for me, 
it was it was miserable. It was embarrassing. It was really embarrassing and really miserable. I was really upset about it. I wrote a long blog post about it, um, but I think it was, there was a value to it because sometimes you, you forget these things. Even if you've been doing it as long as I have journalism, as long as I have, sometimes you get caught up in tweeting or Facebook or whatever social media element, and you need to be reminded sometimes. Don't be a freaking dingbat. Think before you send stuff out. So. Yeah, uh, let's switch to the Super Bowl just a little bit. Um, I'm going to give you my opinion about what's going on with Cam Newton phenomenon, the phenomenon with Cam Newton and the reactions that people get, have towards him, and you can just okay. reply whether you agree or disagree. Uh, I think the media is hype, hyping it in a lot of ways. When you see, like, a letter that one lady's written, and then that becomes part of first take, and I think sometimes – they play on race with Cam Newton, and not that there aren't people that are racist against Cam Newton, especially on Twitter and comments you see on Facebook, but generally he's very popular. There are old ladies in nursing homes dabbing old white ladies. People of all all races, colors, and creeds are now dabbing because of Cam Newton. But I would argue that the outrage that people are anticipating isn't as big as they think it is, but they're still... Uh, maintaining the same volume. What's your whole take on the cam and the race discussion? I think that was very well said, actually. Um, it's a funny thing, right? Because I do feel like there's still, I do, I do still feel like people have different perceptions if Cam Newton does something and Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady does it. You know, if Kaepernick, or if you're all tatted up like Kaepernick, or just if you're an African American who happens to be boisterous and flamboyant like Cam Newton. Um, there are still stereotypes out there, no doubt about it. And, you you know, you rarely hear, you know, you always hear the white athlete, you know, Wes Welker or Wayne Corbett is always dogged, you know, and they're always, like, gritty. And gritty, yes. Keyshawn Johnson or Calvin Johnson, I'm just naming guys through the years, you know, they're always gifted, right? They're always gifted. Um, yeah. And I, it always drives me crazy because, you know what, Wayne Corbett was pretty freaking gifted, and Wes Welker was yeah. pretty gifted, and Keyshawn Johnson Or even someone like off. Jordy Nelson, who is a beast, and you see how much they're missing, exactly. and you look, he's like a track and field champion in high school, but because he's white, you're like, oh, let's compare him to Welker when they're nothing alike. Oh, yeah, the, the comparison thing drives me crazy. They always compare white athletes to white athletes and black athletes to black athletes, and Jordy Nelson – I mean, it's a joke. Jordy Nelson is one of the most athletically gifted wide receivers in the NFL. And people always say, oh, scrappy and blah, blah, blah. I mean, again, I use Corbett because I I grew up in New York and I watched the Jets a lot. Corbett was a gifted athlete, all right? He was not just scrappy. The guy was an athlete, and so was Wes Welker. Um, And so are a lot of guys like that. So I do think there's definitely a double standard without question. That being said, um, Super Bowl week, I've covered, you know, a lot of World Series. I haven't covered Super Bowls. But big event coverage um, tends to be a lot of lazy reporting, right? And it's taking a narrative and repeating it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again because you have an editor or boss back at the office who's giving you instructions who says, wait, we got to get on this story. Whatever the story is, we got to get on this. This is the big story. And in this case, I mean, if you think about it, a Super Bowl is really boring, like the, the lead-up. We know all about these teams. We know all about these players. Their stories have been told. We're now... 20 weeks into an NFL season. Like, there's really not that much more to say. So when a story like this comes up, everybody jumps all over it. Um, and meanwhile, the funny thing is, meanwhile, there's still a lot of disparity uh, among, you know, diversity in newsrooms and TV stations um, and websites even. So 
we talk about sort of the, you know, this racism in sports. Meanwhile, the people covering sports still, I think, uh, do not represent sort of the diversity of the games themselves. So, On the other side of the quarterback battle, what is Peyton Manning's legacy in your mind? It's funny. I mean, it's so weird, right? He won a Super Bowl, so that was supposed to be an end to this whole thing, right? Um, but he didn't play well in the Super Bowl, and it, they beat the a crappy Bears team with Rex Grossman. Um, I mean, to be totally honest, and it's not its not like – it's just sometimes these things happen. Like, there's nothing you can do about it. But I feel like people are going to talk about Peyton Manning – Maybe if he does, maybe if he wins the Super Bowl, if he somehow wins the Super Bowl, I think I think he's good. But I do think people will talk about Peyton Manning if they lose this game, and I think they will lose this game. And they'll say, um, really good, like great, like an all-time great. But he's he's not Tom Brady, he's not Terry Bradshaw. His playoff record was kind of crappy. He didn't play nearly as well in the playoffs as he did in the regular season. I think you know. Ultimately, people are going to talk about that, which doesn't really matter because he had a great career and he made a lot of money and he's probably a happy guy. And I've heard a lot of people uh, coin the phrase or repeat the phrase, the greatest regular season quarterback of all time, which is a backhanded compliment. Yeah, and it's also, again, the whole thing about this whole legacy thing, though, ultimately, it's really kind of silly, right? Because I would say, like, we're all going to die one day. And, like, it doesn't really matter that much, you know? And, like... Peyton Manning had this amazing, he's going to have this amazing, like, 18-year NFL career where he set all these records. And also, like, again, I don't know that much about the, the controversy uh, with the HGH, but, like, was respectful, was funny, you know, like, had one of the most sort of unique dry senses of humor in modern sports, you know, like, was very accessible. Uh, so, you know, I think overall you could do a lot worse than have I'd be thought of the way Peyton Manning's thought of. 20 years from now, how will the American public view football? Um, that's a great question. I mean, I think the game – it's funny. People say, like, oh, the game's in trouble because fewer people are playing. And I would say, like, it's actually kind of a relative argument. Like, if – only 50% of kids are playing football in 20 years from now, as they do now. Um, you wouldn't really notice a difference because everything is relative. Like you'd have less players, but you'd still have enough players to fill the NFL. The balls would be flying through the air. People would be running. If the defense is a little worse and the running backs are a little worse, well, you wouldn't even notice a difference because they're all at the same level. So I think you're always going to have um, – I think you're going to have football a long time from now. I, I, what I do think is going to happen um, is – you know, over the next couple of years, everything with CTA, CTE is really going to blow up. I mean, you're going to have a lot more players because there's so much more testing now. You have a lot more players kind of coming forward, a lot more heartbreaking stories being told on 30 for 30s and 60 minutes and eight real sports. Um, I do think I do, I do think the people who are going to suffer are the local uh, sports leagues, you know, the Pop Warner leagues across America. I think you're going to see a real plummet in membership. My my theory on this in the future of football is that it's become it's going to become a class and a race thing where you're having the South is part of the culture, but you have and I'm African American, mm-hmm. you have these African American kids where they're looking at that as the way to get out, and they're going to keep playing football, and maybe they don't have the fathers or the parental guidance. Whereas you have the suburban soccer mom, white suburban yeah. kind of people who may have more information about it 
and more willing to research it, that might pull out of the game and have the kids play soccer while the African-American kids are going to just keep playing it and take the risk. Well, it's kind of like boxing. I mean, you know, you, yeah, don't, you, yeah, don't, box if, you box if you need to. <laughs> you don't box out of any, any real choice. Um, yeah, I don't disagree with you. I also, I'll tell you one thing that's interesting. Um, I coach my son's youth basketball team, and uh, my assistant coach uh, on, my, on the team this year, his son is my son's age. He's nine, and he played uh, youth football. And uh, I was asking him about it, and he said they practiced uh, five days a week, right, in pads five days a week. Um, and I just say, my wife is literally shaking her head right now. She heard me say that. I think it's insanity. Like, it is insane. And I do think these local youth leagues really need to reevaluate their safety standards. There's, there's no possible benefit to having young football players hit, it, hit each other five days a week. It's insanity. Yeah. It makes no sense whatsoever. So and I'm in Virginia on the other side of the country, and my kids yeah. played two years ago, same thing, four or five days a week, every day. Most impasse unless they were high. Like, it, there's just this old-school mentality about football that it's going to make you a man. I saw on Twitter that people um, were killing you and calling you a wimp or whatever because you said you're, you didn't want your son to play football. Yeah. Um, I would rather my son do – my son is taking origami right now after school, and uh, I'm guessing most people would not consider that a manly endeavor, you know, in cliche speak. <laughs> I'd rather my kid do – I would rather my kid do origami than tackle football – any day of the week. I just, I just don't see it. And also, like, he plays basketball, he plays baseball, and he's playing flag football this, uh, this coming season, and I'm, I'm completely comfortable with that. But I, don't, I just don't – knowing what we know about football and having my eyes open by a lot of experiences, including the Walter Payton book, I just don't feel comfortable with Mikey playing, playing tackle football. I think you'll like this question because you discussed the subject on Twitter a lot, and you even mentioned it in this interview. What does the rise of Donald Trump – and his popularity say about America? Yeah, that's good. I uh, I do like that question. I mean, I think um, when I see Trump and Ted Cruz, those two guys in particular, uh, I still think there's a lot of angry, there's a lot of anger in white, lower middle class in America. You know, there's a lot of, I think people see, quote unquote, their country slipping away, you know, and, you know, it's, it's a repeated theme throughout history where people feel threatened, uh, where there's this sort of, you know, it's a fill in the blank. It could be Mexicans, it could be African-Americans, uh, could be Jews. Uh, whenever you have, yeah, gays, um, you always feel like they're, they're taking away from who I am and, and my culture and my, this is my America. You know, you always hear, we want to make America great again. And I still don't know what, what again, what again they're referring to. Because we've always had problems in this country, you know. It doesn't. We're great now. It's a great country, but there's always problems. So when I see Trump and I see Cruz, and like Cruz's uh, victory speech last night, I mean, it was crazy to me. Like, I'm a I'm a atheistic, agnostic Jew, right? Liberal Jew, and to think I would ever support a guy who views us as a Christian nation. I'm not saying a nation. You could you can make the argument a nation found on Judeo-Christian principles in a very broad sense. But that we are a Christian nation, I mean, that's, I can't even relate with that. And so I think there's a lot of, like, I just think they speak to a lot of anger uh, and feelings of, of unease among a certain uh, population of whites in America. And with Trump, the thing with Trump that amazes me is that 
he is kind of like, and and I kind of have a tendency in relationships and kind of just in life, it's like you set the bar at a certain place and then that becomes the norm. So he can literally say that if you rough that guy up in the crowd that's protesting, I'll pay for it if he sues, or I could shoot a person and my supporters would still support me and they're just in this frenzy and he's made, and it's always I like what he's done because he's more of a straight talker, but at the same time he's, it's irresponsible talk. Even the things with Megyn Kelly, he said, and that he promotes this this environment that is just so raw and nasty. It's like he picked up a log and just turned it over. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think uh, I do think his 15 minutes of political fame are coming to an end. I think uh, Iowa was a rough one for him, and that was like, I hate to. Man, it's so funny. I. I can't stand the politics of Donald Trump, but I would take him over Ted Cruz any day of the week. So I, would take, I didn't take I that much like Ted joy. Cruz is the most, like if you look at the definition of an opportunistic politician, that's Ted Cruz. He'll just say whatever it is to be like, at least Trump kind of like, like as an African-American, I've always said, and a lot of African-Americans that I know say like, if you tell me you're racist, <laughs> I'm better with that than like yeah. you're pretending that you're not. Yeah. And I actually, I actually think Trump, I mean, I can't stand Trump. Believe me, I can't stand Trump. I would, I would not be a happy person if he's president. I do think he's actually, um, he's probably relatively liberal, you know, who like he just found this thing, this like voice. But Trump, I mean, but Cruz, I mean, again, he's a guy who, he truly believes this is a Christian nation. And this is a Christian nation. Think of the diversity of America. Um, I mean, I love the diversity of America. I, I, I absolutely love it. So, I don't know. Well, okay, it's, it's all a scary group. It's hard to see. Hard to see tonight. <laughs> On the other side, do you think Hillary is going to hold off Bernie? Yeah, yeah, she will. I do. I think she will. Um, he doesn't have that. He doesn't have the. Uh, I like him a lot, but once they head into South Carolina, he's going to have a lot of trouble. I think. Yeah, she has to, and he'll win New Hampshire, and then the, there's an the infrastructure that she'll have that's built up over the years and probably overtake him. Well, Jeff, I'm so appreciative that you came on and did this with me, just, uh, I, re- I just really appreciate it. Does, uh, when's the check come? When do I get the check? <laughs> it's in the mail. Yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah, I'll, yeah I'll Molly, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank my you pleasure. so much. All right, take care. Bye. Thanks. All right, folks, that was Jeff Perlman. That was a great interview. I'm glad he did the interview with us. I just want to remind you, if you're listening to this podcast, go on iTunes and give us a rating. Search IBN. Hopefully, give us five stars if you enjoyed it. You can find all of our stuff on Iconic Classically Bombastic. You can look on Facebook, Facebook backslash IBN for more of our content. Until next time, see you later.